Book Six, Chapter Five, Part One of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lee. Book Six, Practice, Chapter Five, Part One evidence in criminal procedure the character of admissible evidence and the methods employed to test its veracity are of such determining importance that an investigation of the system followed by the inquisition is necessary if we are to estimate correctly its administration of justice in this the fact must be borne in mind that the complicated rules of evidence peculiar to english law have grown out of trial by jury where those who have to pass upon the facts are presumably untrained to estimate testimony so that it has to be carefully sifted before it is allowed to reach them while that which is admitted is subjected to the searching process of cross-examination all this had no place in the systems which continental Europe inherited from the civil law. The judge was assumed to be a trained jurist, equipped to distinguish truth from falsehood, so that the flimsiest evidence might be brought before him, secure that its worthlessness would not affect his judgment, while it might afford some clue leading to the truth. The defects of this were greatly exaggerated in the Inquisition where unlimited discretion was allowed to judges, who were mostly theologians, eager to prove and to punish the slightest aberration from the faith, and where the secrecy, preserved as to the names and identity of the accusing witnesses, precluded all thought of cross-examination, although the story of Susanna and the elders might well have conveyed a warning as to the danger of unjust judgment by an unassisted bench. In the ancient Castilian law, both parties to an action saw the witness sworn, but the judges examined them in secret, apparently as a precaution against their being tampered with. Great care was taken as to their character, and those were excluded who were of ill repute, or had been imprisoned, or perjured, or were Jews, Moors, heretics, apostates, or who were interested in the case, or dependents on one of the parties, or were less than fourteen years of age, or very poor, unless proved to be of good fame, while in criminal cases no witness was received who was under twenty, and no member of a religious order. In Aragon the utmost care was prescribed as to the character of witnesses. If not personally known to the judge, the fact was to be entered upon the record and the judge was required to cross-examine them personally as to all minute details that might lead to the exposure of fraudulent testimony under the civil law parents and children were not admitted to testify against each other nor could a freedman be a witness against his patron all these precautions which the experience of ages has shown to be necessary as guards against injustice under systems of procedure where the judge was also in some sort a prosecutor were cast aside by the inquisition in its zeal to preserve the purity of the faith the grossest partiality was shown in the distinction drawn 
as to the eligibility between witnesses for the prosecution and those for the defense. For the former there was no disability, save mortal enmity, toward the accused. From the earliest times the Church had prescribed fourteen as the minimum age for witness, and in Spain, where majority was not attained until the age of twenty-five, minors younger than that were not admitted in criminal cases. Accordingly, in the records of the Inquisition, witnesses are customarily described as majores or menores, but no difference was made in accepting their testimony, and Rojas tells us that formerly he thought heresy could not be proved by two witnesses under twenty-five, but the rule is that the fiscal is not bound to prove that his witnesses are legal. Every one is presumed to be so, and his evidence must be received until objection is made, which, considering that their identity was most carefully concealed from the defense, is tantamount to saying that none could be rejected on that score. Witnesses of the tenderest years were therefore admitted without scruple. In the case of Juan Vasquez, tried in Toledo for sorcery in 1605, one of the witnesses was a girl of twelve. In the same tribunal, in 1579, a witness, only eleven or twelve, was heard against Francisco del Espinar, for maltreating a cross, and the culprit, who was only thirteen, was held to be responsible. Witnesses under twelve were not sworn, because they were deemed incapable of understanding the nature of the oath, but their evidence was received and recorded without it, as appears in the report of Valencia Auto de Fe in 1607. In the Roman Inquisition the canon law was treated with more respect, and the fiscal was not allowed to present a witness below the age of fourteen. There would seem to have been, at first, some discussion as to the admissibility of the evidence of slaves against their masters, but it was settled in 1509 by a provision of the Suprema, declaring it to be legal, but, as in cases of heresy, they were working for their liberty in convicting their masters. Their testimony should be carefully scrutinized, and if appeared doubtful, it should be validated by torturing them. There was also a question as to Jews, for laws of the Fuero Jusco forbade them from testifying against Christians, but they were received in the old Inquisition, and the new was not more rigid. As regards kindred, Simancas tells us that although not allowed to testify for the prosecution in other crimes, in heresy they are the best witnesses, as being beyond suspicion of enmity, and they must be compelled to give evidence, because religion is to be preferred to kinship. In fact, a large portion of evidence was derived from them, for no confession was acceptable as complete that did not include denunciation of accomplices, and those who confessed to save their lives were perforce obliged to betray their families. The agonizing struggle, thus induced between natural affection and self-preservation, is illustrated in the case of Maria Lopez in 1646 at Valladolid. For nearly four months she resolutely denied everything, but her endurance was at last exhausted, and on April 25th and 27th she confessed as to herself and others, and ratified it on May 7th. In her cell, 
She brooded over this until June 25th, when the alcalde reported that she had attempted to strangle herself with a strip of her chemise. The inquisitor hastened to her cell and found the poor creature hiding under the bed. Interrogated as to her motives, she said that a woman who had falsely accused her husband and only daughter, as also her mother and an aunt, did not deserve to live, whereupon she revoked her whole confession, both as to herself and others, as a revocante, the pitiless rules of the Inquisition, doomed her to the stake. Her fears triumphed, and on July 8th she confirmed her confession in April, except as regards her husband. On November 29th she was condemned to reconciliation, confiscation, and prison with a San Benito, and she appeared in the auto of June 23rd, 1647. The Roman Inquisition was somewhat less inhuman, and did not require husband and wife to testify against each other. It naturally followed from all this that in the Spanish Inquisition the rule was observed that where heresy was concerned, all witnesses were admissible, no matter how infamous. Excommunicates were not rejected, and it would appear that even the insane were regarded as competent, for in 1680 Thomas Castellanos, on trial in Toledo, confessed to being a Lutheran, an atheist, and to other heresies, for which he was charitably sent, not to the stake, but to an asylum. Yet he was received as a witness against Angela Perez, as to her utterances to him while in prison. He was duly sworn by God and on the Holy Cross, although, if sane and an atheist, there could be no force in such an oath. In short, the only incapacity of an accusing witness was mortal enmity. All other exceptions known to the secular law, minority, heresy, perjury, infamy, complicity, conviction for crime, were disregarded, although they might affect his credibility. Mortal enmity was difficult of definition, but the doctors were liberal enough in admitting to the benefit of the term any quarrel of a serious character, but proof was rendered difficult by refusing to receive evidence concerning it from any one within four degrees of kinship or affinity with the accused. It is true that some precautions were prescribed to guard against the admission of worthless testimony, but their very enunciation proves how unscrupulous was the current practice. In 1516, the Suprema cautioned the tribunals that when the veracity of a witness was doubtful, his testimony must be verified, and in 1543 it was ordered that the character of witnesses must be recorded so as to serve as a gauge of the weight of their utterances. There was also the formality used with all witnesses in commencing their examination by interrogating them on what were called the generales de la ley as to their knowledge of the parties to the case and any enmity or other matter that might prejudice their testimony, the answers to which were always, of course, satisfactory. In the long run, however, all this, like most other matters, was left to the discretion of the tribunals, which in practice admitted everybody and used their evidence without discrimination. This applies solely to the witnesses for the prosecution. When we turn to the defense, the contrast between the scandalous laxity of the rules prescribed for the former and the equally scandalous rigidity of those applies to the latter 
is the clearest proof that the object of the Inquisition was not justice, but punishment. Throughout the whole judicial system, the vital principle was that it were better that a hundred innocent should suffer than that a single guilty one should escape. Even the formula of the oaths administered to the two classes, in 1484, shows how early the distinction was drawn between them. The witnesses for the prosecution only received a solemn warning from the inquisitor, while those for the defense were sworn under the most terrible adjurations to God to visit on their bodies in this world and on their souls in the next any deviation from the truth. The rules as to witnesses admissible for the defense were carefully drawn so as to exclude all who were likely to be serviceable to him, on the ground that their evidence would be untrustworthy. The inquisitor, thus being sedulously guarded against misleading in favor of the prisoner, while he was trusted to discriminate as to the adverse testimony, thus no kinsman to the fourth degree was allowed to testify for the defense, even when the accused was blindly striving to prove enmity on the part of those whom he conjectured to be the opposing witnesses. No Jew or Morisco or new Christian could appear for him, although they were welcomed for the prosecution, and the same distinction applied to servants. As formulated in the instructions of 1561, the accused was told that he must not name as his witnesses kinsmen or servants, and that they must all be old Christians, unless his interrogatories be such as cannot otherwise be answered. And Pablo Garcia adds that, under such circumstances, he must name a number from among whom the inquisitor may select those whom he deems most fit. It became, indeed, a commonplace among the authorities that witnesses for the defense must be zealots for the faith, zelatores fidei. Yet, in fact, all this is of interest rather as a manifestation of the pervading spirit of the Inquisition than from any practical influence which it exercised on the outcome of the trials, for, as we shall see, the simulacrum of defense permitted to the accused was so limited that in but very few cases did it matter whether he had or had not any witnesses. Prosecutions, of course, were not to be impeded by reluctant or recalcitrant witnesses. The tribunals had full power to summon them and to punish them for refusal. When they resided at a distance, it was discretional either to have them examined by a commissioner, appointed ad hoc, or to make them appear in person. In 1524, Cardinal Manrique even decided that they could be brought from Aragon to Castile, although, as we have seen, this violated the Fueros of Aragon, which forbade that any one should be forced to leave the kingdom. The official summons requires the witness to present himself before the tribunal within a specified number of days, under pain of ten thousand marbedis and excommunication, late sententiae, this censure being pronounced in advance, with notice that, in case of disobedience, it would be published, and he would be proceeded against, according to law. The summons was to be served with the utmost secrecy, and, like all other documents, 
was to be returned to the tribunal with an endorsement of the date of service. Witnesses were compelled to give evidence, and were liable to punishment if suspected of withholding it. In Dr. Zurita's report of his visitation of Gerona and Elne in 1564, it appears that he arrested Maestre Juan Fregola, canon of San Martin of Gerona, because he said that he did not remember a matter at issue. His memory was thus refreshed, and he was released on giving the desired evidence. This continued to the end. In 1816, the Suprema, in confirming the vote of the tribunal of Cuenca to continue the case of Antonio Garces, added that it must take the necessary steps against the witnesses who refused to testify. The examination of witnesses for the prosecution was a duty of the inquisitors. It was one, however, that they threw upon the notaries, who were ordered by the Suprema in 1498 not to take testimony except in presence of the inquisitors, while Cardinal Adrian, in 1522, said that if the latter were too busy to be present, they must at least read the testimony before the departure of the witness and make the necessary re-examination. All this argues a very loose and slovenly system, in a matter of such primary importance inherited doubtless from the early time, when the rush of prosecutions precluded all but the most superficial conduct of business. In that period there had been devices for the division of labor, for we hear of an official, in 1485, known as the receiver of witnesses, and of payments made to clerics, whose presence was essential in the taking of testimony, devices which were abandoned about the close of the century. As business declined, the inquisitors seemed to have taken a more active part in the examination of accusing witnesses, except towards the end, when indolence led them to issue commissions to conduct interrogations. It was the rule that all examinations should take place in the audience chamber, except in extreme urgency, when the inquisitors might hold them in their apartments or houses, a rule of which the Suprema had to remind them, in 1538 and again in 1580. Witnesses were sometimes sworn in groups, but were examined separately as a prudent precaution against collusion. When the estilo had been perfected, there was a prescribed form for commencing the interrogatory, by first asking the witness whether he knew or presumed the cause of his summons. This was usually answered in the negative, when the next question was whether he knew or had heard that any person had said or done anything which was or appeared to be contrary to the faith or to the free exercise of the Inquisition. This had the appearance of careful abstention from guiding him, but if he persisted in the negative, the interrogatory rapidly assumed the aspect of letting him know for what he was wanted and what was expected of him. Thus in the trial at Barcelona in 1698 of a woman named Ignacia for sorcery, Jaime Guardiola asserted that he knew little except that he had forbidden her his house, when Inquisitor Bajaderes told him that the Inquisition had information of his having employed her on several occasions, which he described, wherefore he adjured him, in the name of God and in his blessed mother, to examine his memory and tell the truth. Sometimes the inquisitor went further, and openly threatened a witness, warning him, by the reverence due to God, to tell the truth, 
and not to make the prisoner's case his own. The Suprema might well restrain the excessive zeal of its subordinates by instructing them not to intimidate witnesses, or to treat them as if they were the accused parties. While thus with unwilling witnesses, the Inquisitor acted as counsel for the prosecution, with those who were willing, he made no attempt to ascertain the truth of their stories. He asked leading questions, without reserve, and abstained from any cross-examination that might confuse the story and expose mendacity. When in the trial of Juan de la Caballeria at Saragossa in 1489, his procurator asked that certain interrogatories which he presented should be put to the witnesses. The inquisitors roughly refused, saying that it was their official duty to find out the truth for the discharge of their consciences. So long as witnesses incriminated the accused, as a rule there was no effort to test their accuracy, or to obtain details of place and time or other points which would facilitate defense against false charges. In the case of Simon Nochot in Valladolid in 1642, he succeeded in getting a series of interrogatories put to the witnesses which exposed discrepancies that it was the duty of the inquisitors to have discovered. Even the Suprema recognized the injustice of this. In the case of a priest whom the tribunal of Barcelona in 1665 sentenced to imprisonment for propositions and ordered it to recall the witnesses and cross-examine them as to verify their testimony and also to investigate whether they were actuated by enmity. To estimate the conscious unfairness of this, it is only necessary to contrast it with the treatment of evidence presented by the defense. The handling of this was likewise wholly with the inquisitor. All that was allowed to the accused was to offer a list of witnesses and a series of interrogatories to be put to them. It was the duty of the inquisitor to summon the witnesses and put the questions, or to forward the interrogatories to commissioners for the same purpose. But he had full discretional power to omit what he pleased, both as to witnesses and questions. In fact, he received the interrogatories only salvo jure impertinetium e non admittendorum, and he exercised his power without supervision and without informing the accused or his advocate as to what he threw out. In 1572, Luis de Leon, on his trial, presented six series of interrogatories to be put to his witnesses, of which three were calmly thrown out as impertinent. Not only was all knowledge of this concealed from the accused, but also the answers of the witnesses to such questions as were permitted. It is true that, in 1531, even the Suprema revolted at this, and ordered the evidence in favor of the accused to be submitted to him and to his advocate, so that it might not be said that he was deprived of defense, but injustice prevailed, and the instructions of 1561, in prescribing the suppression of the accused, gave as a reason for it, that the accused might thus be prevented from identifying the adverse witnesses, thus showing how one denial of justice led to another. The witnesses for the defense were further subject to cross-examination, which at least at the earlier period could be conducted by the fiscal. An indecency almost incredible in view of the crippling restrictions placed on the defense. 
in fact the distinction recognized in the treatment of evidence for the prosecution and for the defense is epitomized in the instructions sent to toledo in 1550 to its commissioner at daimiel about taking testimony in the cases of some moriscos of that place he is not told to investigate the credibility of the mass of idle gossip and hearsay evidence gathered for the prosecution but when examining witnesses for the defense he is to cross-examine them strictly to ascertain what are the grounds for their assertions there was one formality not peculiar in the spanish inquisition designed to protect the accused from random or false accusations the ratification which was required of witnesses after an interval had elapsed since their original depositions this was occasionally of service and if preserved in its original form would have been a considerable safeguard in detecting perjury it was conducted in presence of two frailes known as honestas personas and the fiscal was not allowed to be present a prohibition which manrique was obliged to repeat in fifteen twenty nine in the earliest period ratification was frequently omitted doubtless owing to the haste with which the inquisition worked but subsequently it was regarded as absolutely essential its importance was shown by making it an imperative duty of the inquisitor himself to take the ratification either summoning the witnesses or going to them but this was difficult of enforcement cardinal adrian in fifteen seventeen declared that ratification before a commissioner nullified the whole proceedings yet orders were required in fifteen twenty seven and again in fifteen thirty two to make inquisitors perform the duty and finally the attempt was abandoned and commissioners were everywhere employed as a rule no evidence could be used that was not ratified and i have met with not a few cases one as late as sixteen twenty eight which were suspended and the accused were discharged because the witnesses were not found when wanted for that purpose this arose from the fact that in strictness ratification was not to be made till immediately before the so-called publication of evidence which was the concluding step of the prosecution involving a considerable interval during which the witnesses might die or disappear to avert this relaxations or the requirement of ratification were gradually introduced in fifteen thirty three fifteen forty three and fifteen fifty four the suprema inferentially admitted that when witnesses were absent or dead their testimony could be used if the fact was noted on the record there were authorities who held this to be the case in aragon and it was so practiced but elsewhere opinions varied Finally, a successful device was invented of two forms of ratification, one ad perpetuum re memoriam, and the other en juicio plenario. They were virtually the same, except that in the former the witness was told that the fiscal would use his evidence in a prosecution to be brought hereafter, and in the latter that it was for a case on trial. It became customary always to obtain the ratification when the testimony was given and then if a witness was accessible during the trial the ratification and juicio plenario was superadded at what time this expedient was adopted it would be difficult to say 
but it was probably about the middle of the seventeenth century the earliest use of it that i have met occurs in sixteen fifty in mexico where it seems already to be customary while this ostensibly retained for the accused the protection of ratification it destroyed whatever value there was in a prolonged interval between the original deposition and its confirmation at first a delay of four days was ordered for the form ad perpetuum which seems to have been considered sufficient to excite the conscientious scruples of a possible perjurer even this was subject to the exigencies of the prosecution an elaborate series of instructions to commissioners about seventeen seventy informs them that there should be four days interval if possible but if a witness is dying or about to absent himself ratification may be immediate in a case in seventeen fifty eight ratification is ordered to be taken after waiting three hours in others in seventeen eighty one and seventeen eighty five after twenty four hours in another in seventeen eighty three it is recorded that twenty-eight hours were allowed to elapse all of which shows how purely formal was the whole business in truth it was the baldest formality for the process habitually followed deprived ratification of whatever value it might have had originally in place of testing the memory and veracity of the witness by making him repeat his testimony it was merely read over to him in fifteen nineteen and again in fifteen forty six the suprema sought to set some limit to this abuse by ordering that after preliminary inquiries the witness should be made substantially to repeat his testimony and only after this was the record to be read to him but even this was soon afterwards abandoned and the instructions of fifteen sixty one merely provide that the witness is to be told to repeat his testimony if his memory fails questions are to be put leading him to recall it and if he asks to have the record read it is to be read to him of course the witness always availed himself of the privilege and pablo garcia says nothing about his repeating his evidence and directs the reading of the record as a matter of course so perfectly was the whole business a matter of routine that tribunals kept printed blanks to be filled in with names and dates of the customary attestation that the witnesses declared it to be his testimony that it was properly set forth that he had no change to make in it for it was the truth which he ratified and if necessary he repeated it not through hatred but for the discharge of his conscience in fact although the witness was free to make what additions alterations or omissions that he pleased it was dangerous for him to diminish the record substantially for any revocation exposed him to punishment for false witness and both depositions were duly set forth in the publication end of book six chapter five part one recording by guero